This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, American Airlines invests in its future. And HAI has a new leader. Also, the FAA issues new guidance about approach speeds. And Uber's area rideshare is entering the next phase. Finally, we discuss the Kobe accident. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today, Ian? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, our guest this week, you know, to round out this Kobe discussion, a really experienced phenomenal helicopter pilot, Marcus Lavinson. And Marcus has a lot of experience doing a lot of commercial helicopter flying, and he's got some great insights on what goes through the mind of helicopter pilots in all kinds of situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. So stay tuned for that. But hey, let's start out first with some good news out of American Airlines. Very quietly, American has been helping high schools around the country in connection with AOPA launch some students into aviation careers. That's right, Ian. And the technical high school in Greenville, South Carolina, recently got about $8,300 from American Airlines. It's one of 16 high schools around the USA using our AOPA high school STEM curriculum, plus AOPA's You Can Fly initiative got some grant money from American also. But look, the high schools that are using the STEM curriculum are really trying to onboard students and get them excited about aviation. This is just one example of how they're going to do that. Yeah, this is really great. So this is, you know, they've brought in professional pilots, maintainers, all kinds of folks into the school to help kind of mentor the students, guide them along, introduce them to the careers. And then um, these teachers, this is so great because it's really a labor of love for these folks. I love this quote from the story. It says, if, if you can get a student into my class, I can make them a pilot. And, you know, it's really neat. They do drone programs. And, and so this money really will help bring more people into aviation. Yeah. Science teacher Doug Adamatis, he's a great guy. And so he decided, well, he did a little experiment, Ian. Let's say this. He pulled kids out of the lunchroom and got them to put on some, you know, first person view goggles. And they flew a drone and they were so excited about it. He asked them, well, would you take 
my aviation class. I mean, you know, would oh, it be fun? So cool. And and they all nodded, yes, heck yeah, we're going to do it. And so Doug wants to go ahead and get two of these drone outfits together and take them to middle schoolers. He told me, Ian, that the pilot shortage is trickling down to the middle school level. Do you believe that? That's amazing. Oh, no, it's incredible. Incredible. You imagine trying to pick your career when you're, you know, in seventh grade. That's amazing. But hey, regardless, it's a great way. Aviation is such a great way to teach these other sort of broader concepts to keep kids engaged. And one thing I love about this is, you know, th- this school got $8,300. American last year, and this is not something that you hear a lot about from them, uh, they gave away $350,000 to schools around the country. Three hundred and fifty grand, Ian. That's a lot of change. And you know what? It is making a difference because we're starting to see a lot of additional programs come on board. And it's also helping AOPA further develop our curriculum. Let's let our listeners know in the podcast world that we are developing an 11th grade curriculum to go with the 9th and 10th grade already, and soon there will be a senior level curriculum, too, for high school aviation STEM classes. And let me tell you, the classes are fun, man. They made a Venturi while we were there visiting in Greenville. Oh, cool. And the kids, I mean, they loved it. It was, I mean, if I had that when I was in high school, I'd be a much better student. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, keep you engaged. And, you know, it's like... um it's like, you know, blending the vegetables into the spaghetti sauce, right? So, you know, they get to learn what they have to learn, but they get to do it in a fun way and it keeps them uh, keeps them happy and, and listening. So, yeah, I love it. I think this, these are great programs with the ultimate goal of, yes, exposing kids to the aviation industry and, and possibly future careers. So, yeah, great work from uh, You Can Fly and, and congrats to the Greenville Tech uh, Charter High School there. So, hey, wanted to move on. HAI is going on as we record this. Heli Expo. So this is the big helicopter show of the year. And um, we're not going to, like in the past, have we, you know, we've kind of gone through some of the big news from the show. We're not going to do a whole lot of that. But we did want to talk about what I think is one of the biggest pieces, which is that HAI has a new president. Ian, uh, we were talking about this off air um, before we got the podcast going. But uh, Jim Viola, is he's got real credentials. And he also has his hand and feet in the general aviation fixed wing world, too. So he's got a helicopter uh, ratings and certificates. He's got fixed wing certificates. He's an aircraft owner, and he's going to bring some new blood into the helicopter world. So yeah, Jim replaces Matt Zaccaro, who's there for, I think, something like a decade and a half and and really you know helped launch HAI into this eVTOL era and drones and other things. And I think you're going to see that continue with Jim. He, Jim is a super smart guy, and, and we know him through, he was previously director of the Office of GA Safety at the FAA. And so if you recognize that, that is the FISDO. So, you know, this uh, enforcement policy that's come out of the FISDO now, sort of the kindler, gentler, you know, re-education rather than enforcement. I think he's maybe had some hand in that. You know, he would have touched basic med in a way. He touched certification and some of those things. So Jim is a really forward-thinking guy, and I, I think this is a big win for HAI. Agreed. And also, um, it looks like he's already reached out to uh, another helicopter pilot, and that would be AOPA President Mark Baker to kind of get, you know, a pulse for what's going on in the helicopter side of the GA world. And it looks like uh, Jim's going to bring a lot to the table. We're looking forward to that. And you, you and I were just talking about the fact that he's got a Grumman Tiger. Um, I always thought those are really sexy little airplanes. I kind of wish I owned one. 
And uh, but but he's got a ton of time in the Robinson uh, line, and he's also uh, got some U.S. Army chops where he was uh, flying some major missions overseas uh, during you know military deployments and things like that. So he's bringing a lot to the table, Ian. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, Matt, of course, was a vet in kind of the Vietnam era. And so, you know, Jim is um, from the, you know, more modern kind of post 9-11 era. And so this is, uh, it'll be an interesting transition uh, for the organization. But uh, yeah, we wish him all the best. I think it's it's important to have a strong helicopter community as part of GA. So I think there's going to be good things happening there. Hey, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit of, we're going to have a, a little bit of an esoteric discussion here about approach speeds. Now, this is not something we would normally talk about. But this was kind of an interesting item that's come out of the FAA. And when you first hear about it, it's like, okay, why do I care? But the implications are kind of interesting. And that is that the FAA has issued new guidance on approach categories based on the current aircraft speed. So, Ian, I was asking you a little bit more about this ahead of time because, you know, I'm an instrument student, but I don't profess to even be even up to speed in the student department. But I do know that we've got category A and category B approaches that most GA pilots are familiar with. Take me through what this really means. Yeah, so these relate to the minimums for an instrument approach and the approach being that that transition phase between the en route and the landing. And so based on the aircraft speed, the minimums will change. So the slower aircraft, you know, it's like that's category A up into the fast aircraft, which there are few approaches, I'm told, with category E. And so these these minimums have to do with visibility and ceiling. And the deal is that the the guidance has always been that an aircraft is certified at a certain category. So like a 172, they calculate the 1.3 VSO and they say, okay, you're a category A airplane. But uh, let's say you're really booking it down final today. You've got a big gust factor. You're going no flaps. It's a 20,000-foot runway, whatever. You're going faster than 91 knots. Well, now you, you're supposed to use those category, category B minimums. And category B is from 91 to 120 knots, and below 90 is category A. You got it. Yeah, so, you know, that was fine for most GA pilots. Now, however, when you start flying jets, you know, gust factors, partial flap approaches, things like that, you can easily slide up into those category C minimums or maybe even category D with some bigger jets. But what if an approach doesn't have a category C speed? Exactly, exactly. So it was for that and a couple other reasons that um, the FAA and somebody, one of the operators actually raised their hand and said, wait a second, you know, there's nothing in the regulations that says we have to do this. And they were right. The AIM says you shall go up a category but you don't actually have to. And so the FAA is changing the aim and it says you should go up a category. But if your airplane is certified category A and you're flying, you know, you're flying a Cessna 172 at 130 knots down final, you can still use those category A minimums. Okay. Well, that puts it in good perspective. And I think you've explained it for folks like myself and also maybe for some instrument pilots that don't have a lot of current experience. I think this is good information. And it looks like someone has, uh, they definitely raised their hand and stepped up to the plate to, to make it a little bit easier for us to do this. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So as you know, as we record this, it should be going just into effect. You'll see an aim change. And with that, we'll leave the nerdy stuff behind, I guess, <laughs> and promise not to bore you with it too much in the future. But but hey, moving on, some cool future tech. You know, we have we always like to talk a little bit about EVTOL, and there's actually a little bit of news because there's a conference going on, 
where we got an update on what's going on with the whole Uber Elevate situation. Well, Uber Elevate, I mean, this is a real deal. They basically are plowing ahead and they've actually got several certification projects on the table right now. And it looks like things are moving ahead. Now, Ian, you've written a little bit about this before. And I, I know that we're not on target. We're, we're a couple of years behind where some of the projections were supposed to be. But this is a 20 to $50 billion business, potentially. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of movement lately, especially by big movers and shakers like like Uber. And then you're looking at folks like Hyundai. And and now all of a sudden, before you turn your back, you're going to have, you know, the car makers making aircraft. Yeah. So just recently, they had this transformative vertical flight conference, which doesn't that sound so cool? So they kind of updated on what's what's going on with some of this stuff. And, and like you said, one of the more interesting things I think that came out of that was the FAA saying they do have these real concrete certification programs going on, which means that they are beyond sort of the napkin stage, at least into the, you know, the prototyping and that sort of thing. So that was a big one. And I think the other thing, you know, that you, you brought up, which is a really important point, is that the head of engineering for this program for Uber encourage the designers to use wings. Use a wing. We were talking about this off air, but that looks like that's a secret, Ian, to making this work. Because, you you know, the general public, first of all, noise is always a factor. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one reason why electric vertical takeoff is appealing, because it's, it's quieter than traditional vertical lift right now with helicopters. But you still got to convince the public that it's a good thing to do and to quiet things down and to make the make the aircraft go farther. You've got to have a wing, it looks like. Yep. They you know, Uber, I think, smartly is really focused on noise. They've set a noise standard for these operators because they know, I think they know it's like as soon as you go into a downtown area, if you start if you have, you know, really high sort of jet noise fast spinning prop, you know, electric prop noise. It's like people are going to get sick of that. And so they have they have set very tight noise tolerances. And they're saying, yeah, to, to be able to meet those, it's like you're probably going to have to have a wing, which, as we know, has not really been a universal design that we've seen out of a lot of these folks. No, and let's let's do mention it doesn't have to be a wing in the in the shape and the the way that we know of a wing right now, this could be the wing of the future, Ian. And so yep. when you're thinking about these wings, yeah, it could be a wing, obviously, with a something like a tilt rotor uh, type setup at the end of the wing. So mm -hmm. uh, there are a variety of different ways that engineers can tackle this one problem that will help us leap into the future in that 20 to 50 billion dollar business. I know. It's just just amazing. I You know, and I guess we'll leave it on. I thought it was interesting because there is there is some amount of, I guess, uh, you know, realism that comes out of it because they've Uber said, well, you know, the rep from Uber said, well, I, I looked at Dayjet in Eclipse, you know, where, where VLJs were going to darken the skies. And he's like, this isn't this isn't that, you know, it's like we're, we're, we're definitely not that. So we'll see. Right. Um, we'll just have to wait and see if that's if they end up being Eclipse or if they end up being, you know, something else. That's a good point. And uh, folks in the GA field, uh, you know, pilots and, and folks in, in our end of the business, we do remember some of the supposed success stories that weren't so successful, Ian, in the aviation world and, you know, looking to the future with this electrical vertical takeoff and landing phenomenon. I do think that we're going to see a lot of movement. And we'll have to wait and see how it shakes out. Yep. Great point. So. All right. Hey, we got to finish on what everybody in aviation is talking about, and that is the the crash that killed Kobe Bryant, uh, his daughter, and seven other people uh, in California recently. 
this has uh, gotten, as, as I suppose we should have expected, a huge amount of international media coverage. They were finding an F7, S-76 and, and had some sort of impact with terrain, whether it was mechanical or um, CFIT or, you know, whatever. Uh, I think there's still a lot of uh, speculation out there. But this is, it's just obviously such a tragic accident and, and one that I think we're going to see reverberate through aviation for a long time. Yeah, Kobe Bryant was like the L.A. area's mascot. I mean, he was, uh, to a lot of people, the face of L.A., so there's a lot of interest in it. And we still don't know what happened, Ian. I, you know, several people have been speculating on social media, and I understand that, but as pilots and, and folks who really want to take a long-range look at what's going on, there's obviously more than one thing that we have to look at. And uh, we do know that low ceilings and fog prevailed at the time of the accident but we don't know what else was going on and there's just a lot to it but you're right the magnifying glass is on us right now and we really need to find out a little bit more about what happened yeah yeah i mean i will say that um a few things that have that just sort of data points that we should i think make sure to point out to you know non-pilots who talk to us uh who talk to all of us and that sort of thing is that these are these are safe helicopters i mean this is a they're relatively safe operations. Um, you know, I think it's really hard these days because everything is compared to the airlines, which, as we know, has had just an unbelievably impeccable safety record uh, the past couple of years. But, you know, it, it, you don't have to go too far back in history to realize that that wasn't always the case. And I think, you know, it's like the S-76, the accident rate is 0.2 fatal crashes per 100,000 flight hours over the last 10 years. So that, that's phenomenal. Well, Ian, I want you to tell us a little bit more about the S-76 Sikorsky because I know uh, you're a helicopter guru. Um, I'm I'm guessing you might or might not have flown in one of those, but surely you know about the S-76. The 76 has been around for a pretty long time. A lot of folks said to me that it was sort of like uh, the limousine of the helicopter world. So what exactly does that mean? Yeah, it's used a lot in executive transport. It's kind of a favorite of that segment. It, it is an older design, I will say. You know, the um, 76 denotes the year it was developed. So it's it has been out for a while. It's I think its current iteration is the D model. This was a B model. So, um, so you know, a little bit of an older one. But, I mean, you're talking about a twin turbine machine with, you know, that was highly capable. They're IFR certified, which is saying something for a helicopter. You know, it did not, it's come out, the NTSB said it did not have HTAWS, which is um, Helicopter Terrain Awareness, uh, you know, and Warning System. So that's a little surprising. But uh, but yeah, these are incredibly capable machines. And anybody who lives, you know, or flies around like New York City or LA or any other big city will have seen these, you know, uh, on a regular basis. They are, they're very recognizable, you know, one of two of Sikorsky's commercial products. So, and and they're a great machine and and highly capable and very safe as, as the accident record shows. Well, obviously, there's a lot more to learn, and we'll stand by and, and see where the developments lead. Yeah, David, and that's why I'm so excited to be able to talk to Marcus this week, because, you know, we're not going to speculate on what happened with the accident, because obviously, neither one of us was there. We have no idea what's going on. We're not part of the NTSB, and so we're not qualified to do that. But he does have really good insight into how helicopter operators, you know, what's, what they have in their op specs, what these things are capable of kind of the thought process, the risk process that helicopter pilots go through. So I I think that will help folks kind of understand some of what they're reading.
So Marcus, hey, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time. Uh, I know you got a busy week, so you're obviously a very experienced commercial helicopter pilot, and and I think folks are really going to be interested just to, for you to bring us into that commercial helicopter world for a bit. A lot of a world that I think for a lot of fixed wing pilots is is a bit of a mystery. Well, thanks for having me, Ian. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, so give us just uh, all kind of a quick background about some of the flying that you've done. Well, I, I started in the '80s and. Oh, as a flight instructor, as most commercial pilots, uh, most of them start as flight instructors, and I was no different, and ended up in the South Pacific, and uh, I flew off tuna boats for three and a half years, then I did tours, flying tourists in Hawaii, and from there, Powerline Patrol on the Eastern Carolinas, North and South Carolina, and then I ended up, as many helicopter pilots do, in the Gulf of Mexico, flying out to the offshore oil rigs in the early 90s. And did that for three to four years and started flying EMS, Emergency Medical Services Helicopter, flying for a hospital out of Evansville, Indiana, Welburn Baptist Life Flight. And uh, that, that was great. And it was really great experience. And after that, I was there for three years and ended up in California, and I flew for CalSTAR, another EMS operator. Excellent. It was really great. We, uh, I transitioned uh, from multi-VFR to IFR operations, and we had single pilot IFR, IFR operations and eventually goggles, and uh, was there for 18 and a half years, was an instructor as well and Czech Airman. And then in 2012, oh, I just wanted to do something different, and Alaska sounded like a lot of fun, so I joined another operator and ended up in Alaska and flew up in the Arctic along the North Slope, did that for a while, and then in the same company, I'm now flying in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm flying Sikorsky 92s and AW-139s, IFR and VFR, out into the Gulf of Mexico, flying uh, personnel out to the offshore oil rigs, and that's what I'm doing now. Okay, so you a wide variety of experience, and sounds like a lot of different uh, models throughout the years as well. Definitely, yeah. Okay, so uh, we wanted to talk this week because obviously a, a lot of what's going on in the news uh, relates to the S76 accident in California, and and you and I both agree this is not a time to speculate on on why or anything else. But I I noticed that a lot of what I'm seeing on social media and and even you know kind of mainstream media is a lack of general understanding about how helicopters operate and kind of the environment they operate. And so I'm hoping you can you can kind of shed some light on that for us. So if you would, just tell me a bit about the S-76. You know, what what is it? What is it capable of? That sort of thing. Yeah, the S-76 is a, you know, it's a pretty good aircraft, very capable. It's definitely a successful airframe. Um, it was, it's 1970s technology, medium twin, and it's had some updates. Uh, with different models of it, and it can cruise oh, about 140 knots and is capable of carrying about nine passengers, depending what type of interior. There's a lot of variations with it, and uh, you'll still see them. They're not really common anymore in the Gulf of Mexico for the oil companies, uh, but there's still, a, there's still a few around, and uh, they're, good, they're a good, reliable medium twin. And so are they generally, do you find, are they flown multi-pilot or single pilot more often? Uh, in, the, in the Gulf of Mexico, for the oil companies, they're going to be multi-pilots, definitely. So, Marcus, the, the S-76, you said that's a, you know, 70s technology. But um, where you're flying down in the Gulf, stuff is, is a lot newer. And, and from what I gather, you guys are really well equipped. Well, we are. And, 
you'll still see 76s fly down here. It's 70s technology, but it's got variations and updates. And there's a newer 76D model, Delta model, uh, that Sikorsky has come out with. And um, But you really don't see, they're not very common. They used to be very common in the Gulf of Mexico, and they just aren't anymore. And uh, they've been outcompeted. And some of it by Sikorsky's own aircraft. They, Sikorsky makes an S-92 uh, that's a very, very capable aircraft, 19 passengers, lots of fuel, and a lot of safety equipment that, that the 76 wouldn't have or couldn't have. And then Augusta Westland has a 139 and a 189, and those are they're, they're incredible aircraft. They are very powerful uh, engine-wise. And the 139, for example, if if you did lose one engine, it, it's practically a non-event. The, the other engine in cruise flight could absolutely maintain the airspeed and altitude and even climb. So they're very they're very capable. These aircraft, uh, just to give you an idea, you know these the 90, the 139, the 189, and the 92, they all have weather and ground mapping radar. We're talking two RADALTs. We're talking WASP GPSs, two of them, and full four-axis autopilot. And for a fixed-wing guy, what a four-axis autopilot means in a helicopter is it's not just controlling the cyclic, which is sort of like the yoke for a fixed-wing, and the pedals, but also the collective. And the collective is what's what's increasing, decreasing pitch in the main rotor. And that causes the helicopter to go up or down. So if you pull up on the collective, what we always say is houses get small, lower the collective, houses get big. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, they, um, but they're very sophisticated autopilots. They're satellite tracking. The company constantly knows where all those aircraft are, how fast they're going, what altitude, the route. There's a positive operational control over these aircraft, they're flight following. There's radio repeaters offshore, and these these aircraft. Some of them have TAWs, and many of them have the really good version by Honeywell, the EGPWS, and very uh, very capable, very capable safe aircraft. And what's and these are expensive aircraft. You, you want to go out and buy a brand new S ninety two? You're spending thirty million dollars. And these 139s and 189s, they're not cheap. But the oil companies, it's all to be, I think, commended really a lot to the oil companies. They're the customer. They're what's driving safety. They're willing to pay for it. They're capable of paying for it. And they are risk adverse. The worst thing, the worst thing for, for many of the customers and the oil companies down here is not paying top dollar or paying. Who knows how much, how many millions of dollars a year to transport their people by safe helicopters? It's the accident. They don't want the accident. They'll pay for two pilots. These pilots are not just IFR, but most of the operators down here, those pilots are going to flight safety every six months. They got check rides every six months. There's tons of training. It, it goes beyond just being an IFR pilot in an IFR machine. Are you also doing the correct training? So I always feel like for a pilot to be a good IFR pilot in a helicopter and fixed wing, it, not only do you need to be 
IFR licensed by the FAA, but you need to be IFR current and probably just as importantly, of course, is IFR proficient. And yeah. those are all three different things that need to work together to where you got the pilot you want in the front seat. And and so the IFR world, I mean, you know, airplane pilots are used to, you know, it's like whether you have a 172 or a Baron or a jet, it's like that thing is going to be capable of flying VFR or IFR. And that's not necessarily the case with helicopters. So can you talk about maybe some of the, the equipment and training and that sort of thing and what makes it different? Yeah, the difference really is airplanes are inherently stable aerodynamically, most airplanes. And helicopters, they just aren't. And it always used to kind of be described to me when I was a student back in flight school, is that if you have a bowl and you put a ball inside the bowl and the bowl's upright, that's an airplane. Now flip the bowl upside down and put the ball on top of the inverted bowl. That's the helicopter. <clears throat> they really are kind of, un- they are unstable. <laughs> and so flying, what happens is when a pilot is getting his instrument rating in a fixed wing, he likely can fly that, that airplane that he is using for training is capable for the most part of flying in the clouds, like a, one, like a Cessna 172. However, in the helicopter world, for you to be able to fly a helicopter for training that's capable of actual IFR flight in the clouds, instrument flight rule flight, it, it would be prohibitively expensive. Your, your training type helicopters, they're, they're not. So what's happening is the pilot is getting their training under using a hood, restricting the visibility, but that helicopter is not flying in the clouds. So when I was doing training for an operator, a lot of times we were transitioning helicopter pilots to become VFR helicopter pilots to become IFR helicopter pilots. And we could easily have a very experienced helicopter pilot with five to 10,000 hours that actually, and had an instrument rating, an IFR rating, but no time actually in the clouds. And so one of our one of our training curriculums was as much as possible doing actual flight training was to actually go in actual conditions. And, and I don't think you would find that with the fixed wing pilot. I think that fixed wing pilot would have already had plenty of actual IFR condition type experience. Well, and that kind of mirrors your own experience. I mean, you mentioned a few jobs that you had in years of flying where you had the rating, but never really used it. And, and it wasn't until you got to more advanced aircraft and, and EMS flying that you actually started flying in the clouds. That's, yeah, that's correct. You're, you're not going to get into IFR in a helicopter flying in actual conditions and, until it's at least that Bell 222 type size where, where it's got an autopilot, it's got stability systems, it's going to have a lot of bells and whistles, and it's going to have two engines. And it's just that that type of helicopter comes later in one's career. Do you think in general helicopter pilots are, even as they advance in their career, because they they spend so much of their formative time flying visually, do you think they sort of naturally gravitate towards that? Or does it depend on the operator and kind of what their op specs are and that sort of thing? It's a good question because in the fixed wing world, you know, if you're chartering a King Air or a Cessna, you know, 421, a Cheyenne, a, tur- a turboprop. It, it's it's almost a standard that it will be IFR capable. I mean, it would be really unusual to find that kind of an operator and not do that. 
it, it seems in the fixed wing world, that's more of a given. And in the helicopter world, it's, it's not. It's the opposite. And for a helicopter operator to commit to an IFR operation, not only would they need FAA authorization, but there is a big commitment and cost for the pilot, for the pilot's training, and for the aircraft itself. And in many cases, you're going to need two pilots. There are some exceptions to that. Single pilot IFR is permissible in some situations, and it, it's done in EMS quite commonly. But, but probably fairly rare in the corporate oil and gas and other types of IFR. Interesting. Okay. And so some of the other equipment, I mean, obviously when you're talking about IFR, it's, you know, stability augmentation systems and, and, and that sort of thing, really, you know, incredible, incredibly highly technical autopilots. But, you know, a lot of times because they're flying lower and and things like that, it's like you, it's not uncommon also to see, especially more recently, like in the EMS world is, is TAWS. So, you know, a lot of commercial airliners have TAWS, but, but HTAWS is starting to work its way into the rotocraft world. So what, can you tell me a little bit about what HTAWS is? Yeah, TAWS, Terrain Avoidance Warning Systems, they vary quite widely. And they're one, uh, not all TAWS are created equal. I think that's probably the best way to say it. And the one that uh, I'm actually operating these days is the Honeywell TAWS. And it's called the, well, we call it the EGIPWIS. It's E-G-P-W-S, Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System. How's that for an acronym? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, it, and it really is. <laughs> and they've got the Mark 21 and the Mark 22, depending if it's a VFR helicopter or an IFR. And this this is the cat's meow. This is an incredibly sophisticated ground proximity warning system for helicopters. It's basically, you know, the database that your sectional charts built on with the obstructions and the terrain. It's got all that. It's got look ahead. It's not just aware of what's underneath the helicopter, but it's aware of what's in front of it and what's in front of it to the side within a turn radius, how fast the helicopter's going. It's interfacing with two GPSs. It's using the rattle. It's using everything. And it knows closure rates, descent rates, and it will provide the pilot or pilots with visual and audio cautions and warnings. And it, it, I mean, it's so sophisticated. If you're on an instrument approach, you haven't told it this. It knows it because it's interfacing also with the flight management system. It knows you're on an instrument approach, so it doesn't give you a warning that you shouldn't know. But if you were to dip below the glide slope, it would actually be aware of that. And it would give you a warning. And it, it's very sophisticated, and it's incredible. And uh, that, that's, pro- that's the best one out there for helicopters today, I, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. And I know we, you and I have talked in the past that even when you're flying in the Gulf where, you know, theoretically it's like there are no mountains out there, um, it's still very useful because it's mapping stuff, you know, there's the rigs and, and all the other stuff. And then you have other tools that will help you map even the current status like boats and ships and stuff like that. Yeah. What we use, well, I should say with the EgyptWiz, the Honeywell Mark 21 and 22, it's also not just aware of the terrain, but the water itself. And you think there's nothing to hit in the Gulf of Mexico, but tragically, there have been CFIT controlled flight into terrain, in this case, water. There have been tragic accidents out in the Gulf of Mexico, and it, it can happen either at night 
you know, it's still dark in the morning or in the evening and, and also in bad weather. And it, it tragically has happened. And, and this system would absolutely prevent that kind of thing from happening. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So I guess I, I also, I want to go back to your, uh, your EMS days a little bit, because, um, that is, I think somewhat kind of relevant to this accident in that, you know, when you're operating VFR and you're operating a commercial Endeavor VFR, there's obviously tools that you use and, and sort of, you know, over time you get used to that sort of flying, that sort of, you know, making it work kind of VFR flying. So I don't know if you can think way back to when you were flying like that, but what, what sort of minimums did you have? And then, you know, tools like I know in this case, special VFR was, was used, can you just kind of talk through some of that and some of the decision-making process? Yeah, sure. I, I flew EMS helicopters, VFR and IFR, and I well remember those days. And uh, here, here's what we get into. We, I, and I think this, is, this can apply to a fixed-wing pilot and our general aviation pilots. The FAA regulations, such as the weather minimums in Part 91, they're, they're very, very low. And I've not worked for an operator in my career that did not have higher than those regulatory minimums. Like, like for example, Part 91 FAR for helicopter in Class G airspace, less than 1,200 feet, can actually fly around with just a half a mile visibility and at night, one mile visibility. That's it. And no cloud clearances. You just have to stay clear of clouds. You could have an overcast at 200 feet, a half a mile visibility during the day, and you can be flying. And I don't know of any operator that would do that. So what you'll find is operators have higher than FAA prescribed minimums. And it's not just weather, but it could be fuel and many other operational parameters. So they will exceed those. And I think, you know, that's, that's a benefit the GA pilot maybe doesn't have or realize, but, but I would for that GA pilot, nothing stops you from being safer than the, FA, the FARs prescribe and that you can exceed and have your own minimums that are in exceedance of what the FAA would regulate. So when you fly EMS, we, we had much, much higher than mandated weather minimums in the FARs. And what happens with VFR is there's a lot of, you will encounter weather that the, the an airplane typically is going airport to airport, you know, unless you're a bush pilot in Alaska. <laughs> but the helicopter, you find yourself flying to places to pick up a patient, to pick up people on the worst day of their life, and you want to help them, and you want to be there. But you're probably flying to an area along a route that doesn't have weather stations. There's not approved weather. You're going, you're going to a place that you've never landed before. It could be day or night. And there's not weather reporting along your route or at what you want your destination to be. So you're having to use a lot of judgment. I, I think the most difficult, challenging uh, helicopter pilot job there is in the United States, and I'm not talking about military, I'm talking about civilian, is an EMS pilot, especially when you start getting into the single pilot, single pilot, IFR, EMS pilots. They're doing VFR and they're doing IFR. Uh, they're landing in places they're not necessarily familiar with, seeing calls day, night, and it, they're really multitasking a lot. And it's, yeah, you know, my hat's off. That, that's challenging. 
it's very challenging type of flying and it can be done safely, but you've really got to have it together. And part of that when you're flying VFR is you really just got to be able to assess that weather constantly during your flight. You need to be looking ahead and you need to be realizing, hey, is the ceiling dropping? I've got rising terrain. Okay, am I going to get boxed in here? What's it going to be? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to do a 180? What we found in EMS, and I just I think EMS is a pretty good example because they fly day night and they fly in typically you know all types of weather that's safe to fly in. But it's not like they have the benefit of just saying, hey, you know tomorrow it's supposed to clear up. Let's go then. Not really an option. So what what we found, and, and this is true of all pilots, is that the earlier earlier in the flight, it's mentally easier to abort and stop that flight. The farther you are on in a flight, the more mentally difficult it is to say, we can't do it, we're turning around. It's our, we're kind of conditioned to complete that goal. And so like, for example, let's say an EMS pilot at night takes off VFR from a hospital that he's based at. And you know, he's got the med crew on board and five minutes into the flight, they're all three communicating using good resource, crew resource management. And they, the, the weather isn't what they thought it was. And the visibility seems to be dropping. And they all, they, they make a decision and they abort and they turn around and land back at the hospital five minutes into the flight. No problem, right? Well, now let's say they've been flying 30 minutes and they're just a couple minutes out from the scene to pick up a patient. It's a little harder. It's a little harder to say, uh, the visibility is dropping, but we've just got a few more miles to go and we're going to be there. Or let's say you've already got the patient on board and you're flying the patient to the trauma center where they need to go. And guess what? You start encountering unforecasted weather or it's not what you expected. All right. Now you've got a patient on board. Now there's even more pressure. And, and you know, we talk about it in training in EMS. And you, you can't succumb to that because then you end up making the wrong decisions. And But the farther one is along a flight, and this isn't just true of EMS pilots. This is all of us. <laughs> you know, it's like, gosh, we're almost there. We've been flying for an hour and a half. Are we really going to turn around at this point? Yeah. Yeah. But I think part of the battle is recognizing our tendencies to do that. And if you can recognize, hey, that's sort of, that's a trap. That's a trap. Then, then I think it's a little easier to deal with when it happens and saying, gosh, it's a little bit, oh, wait a minute. I'm not falling in that trap. Okay, this is dropping below our minimums or it looks like it's going to. Let's do something about it now. And, and, and one thing as pilots we learn in aviation, early correct decisions are much better than late desperate decisions in a flight. Yeah. Very true. So one of the things that you could correct as a helicopter pilot, and this is something that I think is a little, you know, and airplane pilots look at helicopter pilots and say, why don't you just land? You know, it's like everywhere is, you know, the world is your oyster. It's like, you know, land in a parking lot, land in a field. So what are the, I mean, aside from the the pressures of getting the job done, getting to the hospital, getting to the patient, whatever, what are just some of the operational considerations of doing something like that? I mean, is it as easy as just making that decision and saying, nope, forget it. I'm going to sit down right here. Or is it a little more complicated than that, do you think? Boy, that's a great question, Ian. And, oh, a number of years ago, for a couple of years, HAI, the Helicopter Association, they really stressed that. You know, they had a safety campaign that was just land. And 
You know, that's the beauty of the helicopter. That's why it's a wonderful paramedical EMS aircraft. And it, it's the ultimate off-road vehicle. It can really land not anywhere, but almost anywhere. I mean, steep mountainsides, that's not going to happen, of course. But it, that's, the, that's the beauty of a helicopter. That's why helicopters exist. If a helicopter could not hover and fly at zero speed, nobody would be buying them. It's not, yeah. it wouldn't be worth it, right? <laughs> they would be yeah. prohibitedly, ex- I mean, I too, love yeah, them. Too expensive. I love them, yeah. but come on, if a helicopter can't hover, uh, it's yeah. a tough sell. <laughs> so um, I, I think that I have seen examples of EMS pilots landing because for maybe they had a mechanical issue or more likely weather that helicopters are so incredibly reliable these days. The engineering, it, the helicopters have just gotten better and better and better. And unfortunately, us as pilots, we're we're just not we're not finding new ways. We're we're still doing the same old mistakes, and we're we're seeing that in the accident rate data, unfortunately. But some of the best decisions I've seen EMS pilots make is just to land. And I'll give you one example. It was an airplane pilot that made a wonderful decision. I was bringing a 139 from Alaska through Canada to Pennsylvania. And I landed at Whitehorse to clear customs, uh, which is in Canada. And there was a Husky, a beautiful, brand new Husky tail dragger. They landed right after us a few minutes. And we were talking to the pilots. And uh, we didn't have enough daylight to get to our next stop, which, as it turns out, was also going to be their, their stop. And we stayed the night. And I didn't know what happened to them. And the next day, we're at Fort Nelson getting fuel. And... What do we see? We see that very same husky land. And and I thought, I didn't see them at Whitehorse that morning. I thought they were long gone, right? <laughs> and they were a little bit rattled. And it turns out they had tried to fly from Whitehorse to Fort Nelson that late day. And the weather, it there's just next, it's a long flight. It's the Rocky Mountains. It's northern Canada. There's no weather stations. It's this is serious, desolate type flying. And they they got squeezed down. The weather got really bad. And they landed that airplane on a gravel bar and spent the night along the river gravel bar. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And you think, is that crazy? No. Crazy would have been continuing. That saved their possibly saved their lives. And that was a wonderful decision. And I was with a couple pilots and a mechanic, and we all shook their hand and said, good call. That's great. You spend an uncomfortable night. So what? You get to live to talk about the uncomfortable night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have a good story out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they did. And I, I'm sure, I, hopefully the rest of their flight was uneventful. They were out of the mountains at that point, off to Arizona. Yeah. But uh, yeah, right. yeah it, it was a good call on their part. And uh, sometimes the just land, Maybe that's even an option for a fixed wing. Who knows? Maybe there's a dirt road or some area that that, that airplane, especially a tail dragger GA type aircraft, you know, like a Cub or many others, is comfortable and able to do safely. So that kind of thing is probably more apt to happen in Canada and Alaska, but it happens. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Well, it's good advice. Good advice. So, Marcus, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, you bet.
Yeah, David, I'm really glad we could catch up with Marcus. The guy is is so experienced and has kind of been everywhere in the helicopter world. And um, and so this accent will be big for them and, and operators like his. Yeah, I'm really glad you caught up with Marcus. He brought a lot of clarity to the table and really put some insight in there that I really was was very, it was just very valuable information. I was glad to hear about it. So, hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly, and our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on the Sporties Takeoff app and on Spotify. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.